couple of times ago when I spoke, I spoke about the necessity of um, practising the principles of being a Berean and of, of looking at what we're taking in and what we're accepting and all this. I want to continue in a way this morning but it's for two reasons. The first is a practical demonstration of how to apply this Berean principle because you can, we can talk about things and teach about things, but practical application is one of the most useful things, I think, that can be included in a message or in a sermon. So I'm going to do that this morning because this golden opportunity has presented itself. And it's presented itself in the manner of a booklet that has been circulating in this area. And uh, I know probably... I think it was sent to every resident in Bulls and the outlying areas, Sanson, Rongatia, um, all the post office boxes. And it's this booklet, National Sunday Law, it is called. And it raises some issues there. And I want to use that to demonstrate the Berean principle of looking at something that... Um, appears one way but perhaps it's not always it appears and I think this National Sunday Law booklet is a great example of a mixture of truth and fantasy and so we're going to look at it um, so I am going to go through it not in great detail and length but just to illustrate this point about the Berean principles so in this booklet that arrived um, chapter 1 is speaks of a revelation it speaks of a revelation reference and that's where it starts off and it says here um, it all starts on a stark rocky island and this is speaking of the revelation of John um, what he sees what he sees is fantastic, strange beast, clashing armies, nations rising. Now the first thing that comes directly after that, it says, it's no surprise that the greatest nation on earth should be mentioned in prophecy. What John sees portends events shaping up in the United States that will definitely affect you. Okay? So there's the first thing that should be a red flag if you're reading something like this. The United States, as much as Americans would like it to be, is not mentioned in Scripture. All right? But here is this opening statement that is forming the bedrock of this whole booklet. And I think there's 46.1 million copies of this in print. And so people are going to be affected by it. Um, and... It needs, we need this sort of thing. We need to be careful. So that's the first thing that should have so should put your little antenna up when you read something like that. And then it goes on to say, watch closely now as the scene unfolds. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Revelation 13, 11. A beast in prophecy represents a kingdom. I'll give another uh, biblical reference here. And so it goes on to say, so here we have a nation that is springing up. Oh, to come out of the earth is just the opposite, because this is out of the sea, which is scriptural, and we saw that. It says then, to come out of the earth is just the opposite. 
because that scripture read, as I behold another beast coming up out of the earth. So here we have a nation that is springing up out of a wilderness area. Instead of overthrowing vast and well-trained armies from the dense population of the old world, this nation would be an area discovered. In the eyes of the known world, it would be a new territory. Differing from the often blood-soaked nations of Europe, it would spring up quietly, peacefully, like a lamb. Can you guess what nation of the new world arose into power, giving promise of strength and greatness that would fit this description? Sure, the United States. Right? Now, I think the United States has done some wonderful things in the world. There's no, you know, as far as freedoms and things, I've got no problem with the states, apart from the fact that it's the same as the rest of the world. It's no different from our country, but it has had a lot more influence. I'm not bagging the states at all. I'm just pointing out this is the things that we should be checking when we're receiving this type of thing. Because firstly, you know, it says, uh, arose into power, giving promise of strength and greatness, that it would spring up quietly, peacefully, like a lamb. Well, really, the foundation of America had noble intent. But the reality was slaughter, broken treaties, promises, slavery, racism, and genocide is the history of America, and it's quite recent. Um, so really, the description, quietly, peacefully, like a lamb, is way, way errant. Um, it sprang up from like a plant from the ground. Um, the pilgrims and settlers met up with Indian tribes to, compared to the crowded cities and millions of the old world. America was a wilderness. Um, so it's, it's painting this picture of peacefulness and we met the, met the natives and we all lived happily together and worked it out, which is just misleading. A lamb-like horn indicates youth and gentleness and represents civil and freedom, civil and religious freedom. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution reflect these noble views. Well, the idea was good, the idea was wonderful, but the reality was totally different. And you can write something in paper, which they did in their civil and religious um, allowances in the Constitution, but because it was, it was considered a living document, then it's been tweaked all the time to suit the times. And as we know, the times are not very good in God's eyes. And so all the, the Constitution has become a um, broadsheet permission for sin, pretty much. It's not gentleness and civil and religious freedom. It's turned pretty much to the opposite. opposite. And out of the earth, is, uh, so it says, you know, a beast coming out of the earth is a nation that's arising from the wilderness. I checked, I don't often use commentaries, but because I disagreed with this myself, I know how opinionated I am, and I thought I always consider my opinions right. Um, so I thought, well, i better check other people's opinion on this since I'm bringing it to you. And I checked all the respected commentaries, there are five or six of them of scholars, and not one of them um, mentioned coming out of the earth as a nation. Not one of them. And so that's another thing that is inaccurate, but it does suit the purpose of this book. And when you start to use scripture to make your own point, then it is 
edging into very, very dangerous ground. Um, out of the earth, it does refer to the Antichrist coming out of the sea of people, not a nation. And the last reference out of this chapter 1, Who can wonder that the United States President has revealed his willingness to support legislation which would help collapse the separation of church and state? And he spake as a dragon, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. They're, they're sort of claiming that the President of the United States is the dragon. Is, is this Donald Trump? Is it Biden? Is it Obama? Are they the dragon? Well, obviously not, according to Scripture, but these are the things that have been said here. Go through to chapter 2. As I say, this is not uh, this is an illustration of how to look for these things in the book, and I'm only touching on small parts of this. Um, it says in chapter 2, it is clear that the beast gets its seat and authority from the dragon, but who is the dragon? And chapter 2 is devoted to identifying the beast, and it's fixated on the Pope and the Catholic Church because this is a Seventh-day Adventist book, and they have a certain process of, in their eyes, proving uh, a point that we'll get to. So, But they do fixate on the Pope and the Church. Now, that may or may not be true. Um, it says... So the dragon represents not only Satan, but also a kingdom through whom Satan worked to try to kill baby Jesus as soon as he was born. Now what kingdom was it whose king decreed the destruction of the babies of Bethlehem? Of course it was King Herod. He was employed by and a representative of Rome. So here's another clue. The beast gets its power, seat and authority from Rome. It's coming clear. The dragon represents Rome. Rome was the empire used by Satan to destroy the saviour of the world. Now let's take a closer look and off they go. Now, it may be true, but it is not proven in Scripture. It is not identified in Scripture who the beast is. But this book does identify who the beast is. And the thing is, the wonderful thing about it, it, it will, as it progresses through chapter 2, it tries to shoehorn history into proving this point. It, it, when you try to make something fit that it wasn't intended to fit into, then it's, it's weird. It's a weird thing to try and do. And that's what they try and do. They try and make that point historically, and, and their, even their history is very, very dubious. And the wonderful thing about God's word is that it's okay if we don't know everything. He chose not to reveal everything to us. That was his choice. He chooses to reveal what he chooses to reveal as is his sovereign right. So if it's not revealed who the beast is or who the Antichrist, we're allowed to have our theories, we're allowed to have, well, that's, that's fine. But when you start condemning a whole world almost based on these types of things, dangerous, dangerous stuff. Um, there are scriptures that refute this or point out that it's, that it's erroneous. Excuse me, I'm going to be a little more disjointed than normal because I'm not used to using something like this. Normally I have notes and I don't have to refer to a, another thing. Um, but 
we have a statement here. In identifying the beast, God is not talking about sincere people who are involved with it ignorantly. Now, this is a serious statement. God is not talking about people who are involved with it ignorantly. Do you know what I mean? When he identifies it, he is talking about the system, the leaders who know what they are doing and deliberately disobey and change the word of God. Do you see? Our God is a tender father. He only holds accountable those who understand what the Bible commands and knowingly disobey or will turn away from hearing his word and are willingly ignorant. What they're saying here is that you have to be aware. If you're unaware, then you go to heaven. It's contrary to scripture. Ignorance is no excuse. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, holding the truth in unrighteousness. Because the things known of God are clearly known within them, for God revealed it to them. For the unseen things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things made, both as eternal power and Godhead, for them to be without excuse. Because knowing God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but they became vain in the reasonings, and their undiscerning heart was darkened. An undiscerning heart has been darkened, that wrote this, and is trying to spread that darkness as widely as possible. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 19, again, in the same vein. Therefore I say this, and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk even as also the rest of the nations walk in the vanity of their mind, having been darkened in the intellect and alienated from the life of God through the ignorance which is in them because of the hardness of their hearts, who having cast off all feeling, gave themselves up to lust to the working of all uncleanliness with greediness. Professing to be wise, they became foolish." And this is foolish. This is foolishness, in my opinion. In identifying the beast, God is not talking about sincere people. So they say the beast is the Catholic Church and those people within it and, and those that believe in that. Um, he only holds those accountable who understand what the Bible commands. Is that a heretical statement in light of Scripture? is what you need to be asking in these types of things when these statements are made. Keep in mind, and this is the other statement they've made about this issue, keep in mind that our God is kind and fair. Those who are keeping Sunday and breaking God's fourth commandment ignorantly are not on to condemnation. Don't forget that. It's only those who know what God commands and willfully disobey who are committing sin. Bunch of sinners you are, according to this really because we've all heard these things and so we would fall into the category of uh, we're breaking, keeping Sunday and breaking God's fourth commandment. So this is a very condemning statement. Okay, so chapters 3, 4 and 5, they spend copious amounts of time proving the Pope and the Catholic Church as the beast of Revelation and then they go to the main thrust of the booklet 
to show that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast and Saturday worship is holy in God's seal. We observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church and the Council of Laodicea, AD 364, transferred the solemnity, solemnity, must be solemnity, yeah, from Saturday to Sunday. What could be clearer? The seal of God is his Sabbath. Satan knew that he had to get this very part. No wonder the beast of Revelation ripped it out and put in a substitute. Look at this shocking statement concerning the beast's terrible act. Of course the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act. And the act, get this now, is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. Sunday worship is the mark of the papacy's authority, the mark. Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. There is no grey area here. Well, they didn't really mean that. It's very, very clear. So Saturday worship is God's seal that's spoken of in the Bible according to these guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22 reads, For as many promises as of uh, God, in him they are yes, and in him they are amen, for glory to God through us. But he confirming us and anointing us with you in Christ is God. Even he, having sealed us, and having given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. He confirming us and anointing us with you in Christ, having sealed us. There's no mention of Saturday in there. You're sealed by God when you accept Christ as Lord and Saviour. So you would ask the question about that statement, is that more, is that a heretical statement? So, yeah, it's unbelievable what the, the claims that are made in here. Um, chapter 6 and 7 go on to explain the importance of USA and the end time prophecy and how it will unfold. Of course, we all know that the whole world revolves around the states, um, unless it's on news, and then the whole world revolves around New Zealand because we can find a link to anything that's going on in the world. And we're interviewing a New Zealander that was there at the time. He was 500 yards away and didn't see anything, but he was there. So all nations think they're the centre of everything. But you know, the United States has the power and the will to impose this, and they generally believe that they are pretty much central to the future of the world. So the whole book is centering around the USA, is central to the outworking of God's plan. That is an outright lie. It's an American book. It's just been imported here. Israel is the only nation which it all revolves around. Not America. And yet, Israel didn't even get a look in this booklet. So the summary of the booklet. Firstly, need that anymore. Uh, interest, did many people get this in their mailbox? Yeah, probably, probably went to every mailbox. Okay, a summary of the booklet. America is hugely important in scripture. Well, as I said, America is not mentioned in scripture. And 
to, to really point out these things, Ezekiel 34, verses 25 to 31, to address how important America is in Scripture, which doesn't even get a mention in the Bible. Ezekiel 34, 25 to 31 makes it very clear. And I will cut a covenant of peace with them and make evil beasts cease out of the land. And they shall live in the wilderness securely and sleep in the forest, and I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. And I will bring down the shower in its season. There shall be showers of blessing, and the tree of the field shall give its fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be securely on their land. And they shall know that I am Jehovah when I have broken the staffs of their yoke and have rescued them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall not be any more a prey to the nations, and the beast of the land shall not eat them, but they shall live securely, and no one shall terrify them. And I will raise up for them a noted planting place, and they shall not any more be of those gathered by famine in the land. They shall not bear the shame of the nations, and they shall know that I, Jehovah their God, am with them, and they are my people, the house of Israel, declares the Lord Jehovah. And you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, I am your God, declares the Lord Jehovah. Israel, not America. Okay, second point, there's five points here summarising this. Second point, if I can find it. Sin is only sin if you're a willing participant and ignorance of the truth gets you off. That's the statement they make, it's a Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed, sorry, 18 to 21. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, holding the truth in unrighteousness. Because a thing known of God is clearly known within them, for God revealed it to them. For the unseen things of him and from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things made us both his eternal power and Godhead, for them to be without excuse. Ignorance is not an excuse according to Scripture. Because knowing God, we used this before, but knowing God, they do not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but they became vain in their reasonings and their undiscerning heart was darkened. I used that Scripture before, but as a summary, it's worthwhile using again. And um, I think I just caught my eye then nor were thankful. A little reminder in there for us to have thankful and grateful hearts because an unthankful and an ungrateful heart will lead to darkness. The enemy will use an ungrateful heart to make you complain against God when your circumstances go toes up and then it's a slippery slope once you start down there. They became vain in their reasonings and their undiscerning heart was darkened. All can find the truth if they wish to look for it. Every human being can find the truth if they wish to seek. And, there's a, and so ignorance of the law is no excuse. It is not an excuse. The third thing. Saturday is the true holy day and God's seal upon the saved. Sunday worshippers have received the mark of the beast. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Then do not let anyone judge you in eating or drinking or in part of a feast or of a new moon or of Sabbaths, which are a shadow of coming things, but the body is of Christ. 
So they're judging us. Totally contrary to scripture. Romans 14, verses 4 to 6. Who are you judging another's servant? To his own master he stands or fails, but he will stand, for God is able to make him stand. One indeed judges a day above another day, and another one judges every day alike. Let each one be fully assured in his own mind. The one minding the day, he minds it to the Lord. And the one not minding the day, he does not mind it to the Lord. The one eating, he eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And the one not eating, he doesn't eat to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So, one day is esteemed by others. We've learned over the years, surely, that it is the heart that God looks at. It is the heart towards him, the heart of worship. We chose this day, and I'll get to that shortly, but our hearts are here to worship God. That is the thing he is looking for. And to suggest, not suggest, to outright state that by continuing to worship on Sunday, or especially now you've heard the truth according to the Seventh-day Adventist booklet, if you do not change your ways, you have received the mark of the beast, is abhorrent and it is heresy. So maybe the apostles overlooked an instruction and that's why there's this confusion. Acts chapter 15, there's a little background here, verses 5 and 6. Acts 15, 5 and 6. But some of those from the sect of the Pharisees, having believed, rose up saying it was necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. New believers, Christians. And the apostles and elders were assembled to see about this matter. That's the background part of it. It goes on, Acts 15, verses 28 to 30, their conclusions. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay hands on you to lay on you, sorry, no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, you, should, you shall do well. Then indeed they, being let go, came to Antioch and they delivered this letter. Now, surely... That was the time for the apostles to say, and worship on Saturdays. Because it was cultural at that particular time. The Sabbath was a, a powerful day amongst the culture. They did meet on the Sabbath, on the Saturday. They also met on the Sunday. And so surely that's when this question came up about what Gentiles had to do would have been answered very clearly then if it was an issue. But it wasn't. So either the apostles overlooked that instruction, God forgot to remind them to tell them, and it never made it into the Bible, or it wasn't considered an issue. Fourth point, that this Sunday worship was brought into being in 364 AD as a pagan displacement ceremony 
Now, we've all probably heard about these things that if you wish to get rid of a pagan thing, you stick something on top of it, a Christian thing, and as children are brought up with the Christian thing being celebrated when their parents die, they carry on and bring their children up to the new celebration, displacement thing. So this was brought into, the book says, 364 years, 364 AD. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Sunday worship started, remember this, 364 years odd later. On the day of Pentecost, all the Lord's followers were gathered together in one place. Suddenly there was a noise from heaven like the sound of a mighty wind. It filled the house where they were meeting. And they saw what looked like fiery tongues moving in all directions, and a tongue came settled on each person. That was a Sunday, as was the resurrection of Jesus. Now surely, if this is the mark of the beast, it's just logical. Why would these things be recorded in Scripture as being significant and important? Yeah, if, if, it, if it's... Her, if it's the mark of the beast, surely Jesus' resurrection day wouldn't be a Sunday. But logic goes out the window when arguments are presented sometimes, if it's, especially if it tailors in with something that you sort of have as a, a theory of your own. So there are several other scriptures that indicate the early church met on Sunday as well. You can find them if you want to look for them. But it doesn't exclude them from meeting on Saturdays didn't exclude them from meeting on every day of the week. And one of the other things that is, is, is mentioned and is often uh, thrown up about Sunday worship is that it's you know, the pagan aspect of it. Meeting on that day, Sunday was a, pagan, was a pagan celebration. Fair enough. Because all our days, Monday through Sunday, in English... Western culture are named after the Norse gods, which were pagan. Sunday was Sol, the goddess of the sun. Sun's day, the sun, yeah, goddess of the sun, the sun's day. That's where the Sunday came from. But unfortunately, Monday was for Mani, the goddess of the moon, Mani's day. Tuesday was for Tyre, the god of war, Tyre's day. Wednesday for Odin, the raven god, sometimes known as Woden, Woden's day. Thursday for Thor, god of strength and storms, Thor's day. Friday for Frigg, goddess of marriage, Frigg's day. But we worship on the Lord's day. And Saturday was the Saturn. So pick a day. You're still worshipping on a pagan named day. Oh no, we're not have worship at all now. <laughs> this is how silly it is. They're names of a day. Well, it's a pretty stupid way to try and get us to do it, really. Um, so we worship on the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection, which of course has been mentioned already today. We're not worshiping on any particular Sunday for the because it's Sunday, because it was the resurrection day was a Sunday, and so we worship on that, and surely that is not worthy 
of being told that we're going to hell because we have the mark of the beast. Now, I'm not trying to prove or disprove Sabbath worship. You're free to worship on the Saturday. You're free to worship on the Sunday. You're free to worship. That heart should be every day, not just a Saturday or a Sunday. But if you wish to observe the Sabbath, you've no problem with that. It's up to you. You have that freedom in God. It's a lot more complicated than most people think. But hey, that's between them and God. Now, and one last point with this. You must worship on Sunday, on Saturday, in order to be saved. Right? This is what this book says. You've got to go to the Saturday in order to be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. According to this, because if you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. There's no mention of having to believe that on the Saturday. That's the window of opportunity. Nothing like that at all. There is no mention in Scripture that I can find of salvation and specific worship days connected to them. Just because things flow and sound good don't swallow them because you may be ingesting poison. And to me, that book is poison. Now that's the end of that. That's all I have to say about that. You can read it for yourself and judge it for yourself. I do have one little aside for you since it is Easter. And this is very interesting. I only sort of found it yesterday. And... This is the about how Easter is perceived by Christians, because we know we don't you know, we don't celebrate Easter. We celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday, and and as the acknowledgement of of the crucifixion on the Friday. Um, unfortunately, I've printed the same page twice, <laughs> and so I. I haven't got it. Um, the message of Easter as being pagan, this is from memory, and you can check this yourself, so I'm going to give you the, rec- uh, give you the reference. I'll just make sure I haven't cunningly put it on another piece of paper in here. No, not that cunning. Okay. The Easter as being pagan was first only mentioned in 1500 and something by a monk called the Venerable Bede. Right? And with no historical evidence of any sort, he declared that Easter was a pagan festival and all things associated with it were pagan and evil. The guy had no credential, no evidence, no historical facts. He just made it up. Hmm? And it was accepted then because it suited the purposes of basically the Catholic Church. I'll give you the reference to check into this because you do need to check into this. But the other thing that comes with that uh, is two things, and this is a good example of how my lack of Berean uh, thoroughness has led me to believe something for years. And this is the 
one about the pagan festival is that it was a festival to the goddess Estri, E-O-S-T-R-E. So it was a it was a festival for her. Ah, yes, the venerable Bede, six hundred and seventy-three to seven hundred and thirty-five. He lived in olden times. The English people, for it didn't seem fitting that I should speak of other nations' observance of the year and yet be silent about my own nations. It's English calculated their months according to the course of the moon. Hence, after the manner of the Greeks and the Romans, the months take their name from the moon. The moon is called Mona and the month Monath. The first month, Latin's called January, is Gwili. February is called Solmanath. March, Hethmanath. April, whatever that word was, Manath. Estermanath, we'll call it. Estermanath has a name which is now translated Paschal Month which was once called after a goddess of theirs named in whose honour feasts were celebrated in that month. Now they designate that Paschal season by her name, calling the joys of the new rite by the time-honoured name of the old observance. There are two major problems with this supposed fact. The first is the lack of corroboration for this Anglo-Saxon goddess anywhere else. There's no mention of her anywhere else apart from Venerable Bede. Right? There's no mention of her. So she seems to be the result of Bede's own theorising rather than the knowledge of any pagan customs. This is what he made up. That well, I'll give you the reference because it comes from Creation Ministries, which is a fairly sound um, ministry, which I think is quite thorough and trustworthy. Now, as I said, I haven't, I haven't looked at this thoroughly. I'm just presenting you... The, the highlights so you can go and check it yourself. There's your first Berean exercise, and it's an easy one because it's creation ministries. And so there's a problem with this. Now, Easter eggs, which came up last week. Um, this is from the same article. Easter eggs are not pagan, but an early Christian tradition that began in Mesopotamia in the season of Lent, neither commanded nor forbidden by Scripture, those churches that would observe it would refrain from eating eggs. But the hens were still laying them. To avoid spoilage, the eggs would be hard-boiled. Then they were dyed red to symbolise the blood of Christ. Later on, other colours were used. For some Christians, cracking the egg open would symbolise the opening of Jesus' tomb. Much later, they were replaced with chocolate and candy eggs. The Easter bunny goes back to German Lutherans, not pagans, although it was a hare, probably in the same created kind as the rabbit. Because of their proverbially high fertility rate, ancient writers such as Pliny the Elder and Plutarch thought it was a hermaphrodite and thus could reproduce without fertilisation. Then Christian used this as a symbol of the Virgin Mary. Okay. Now, I'm not saying it's not stupid or not whatever. I'm saying it's not pagan. These things came from Christian origins. Some have claimed that the hare was a sacred animal of... It's, uh, some have claimed that it was a sacred animal of hers, but as shown above, it's most doubtful that any Eshtar was ever worshipped because the only evidence is from the Honourable Bede. And he never mentioned any animal associated with her. A non-existent association with a non-existent goddess is hardly good grounds for seeing paganism in the Easter Bunny. 
So there you go. Now, creationministries.com. That's they're online. They they are a wonderful, informative um, group of people who research things pretty thoroughly. Um, is Easter taking our eyes off the Lord? Or? I, I don't think that at the, the, the bunnies and the eggs take our eyes off the Lord any more than Shortland Street or um, uh, flash cars or anything else that the enemy uses to distract us and take our, our vision off God and the tools that are used to blind the world to it. Most people in the world, I don't think, even know about Ishtar. They just enjoy chocolate. All right? And I don't think that um, it is an important thing in the respect of how the world is blinded by so many savage and ungodly laws. I think abortion is a far worse thing than Easter eggs. Mm -hmm. And so... I would, I, you know, I, I'm, I'll just use that as an example. Now, you can either go and check it out further or not, but what I'm saying is, just as this National Sunday Law is worthy of Berean standarding, if I've said something now that disagrees with your belief about Easter eggs and rabbits, then check it out and correct me. This is the whole principle. Dave. Okay. <laughs> yes. So this is my purpose. This is the Berean thing, not to prove my point about Easter eggs or bunnies or anything else. But you either choose to check this out and then correct me if I'm wrong, which is the proper thing that you should do, or if it turns out that I'm right, then you need to adjust your own beliefs. So there's no grey area here. Hmm? So there you go. Something a little bit different. Sorry it was a bit stuttery, but I'm not used to using references out of a third thing. Who did? Okay. Okay. So um, the unfortunate thing is, Mike, if, even if they've dissociated themselves from that book, I believe they still do hold the view that if you do not worship on Saturday, you are not saved. Yeah. So, Father, these things, I pray, Lord, that you will sort them out in people's hearts and minds. We just wish to. Make sure that we don't stray from your truth and your word because that is only the only place that our safety lies for eternity. You have saved us at great cost, which we celebrate today. This resurrection day, something the world had never, ever seen. And Lord, we wish to stay true to your word and stay true to your son that paid so much. And so, Father, when we're just continually... Um, sort of beset by falsehoods and the enemy trying to undermine your word and all these things, Lord. We seek to be better 
at understanding and investigating it, Lord, and comparing it to your word. We pray that you would help us to do this and not just to swallow stuff that may be slowly poisoning us and causing dissent when we get hold of an idea between each other, but rather, Lord, that in looking at these things together, then we may have an understanding of how does you wish unity to work. So, Father, just pray that you would just drop any words that are just my own opinions and foolishness. They will find no place in hearts and minds, and only your truth will get to live there. We thank you, Lord.